How do you know you're up to date? When you follow EMS World, you answer that question with confidence. Because when we say EMS World, we mean the whole world of EMS. The remaining question for you is how will you stay up to date? In print, online, at EMS World Expo, the world's largest EMS dedicated conference, and now in a podcast. Hello, I'm Mike McCabe, host of EMS World Podcasts. Today I will be reading the article entitled Spotting the Clotting, Hypercoagulopathy in COVID-19. This article appears in the August 2020 issue of EMS World and is by Dr. Michael Estryker, Dr. Tiasha Haranyak, and Dr. Paul Pepe. A few months ago, the SARS-CoV-2 virus was readily dismissed concern in the minds of most Americans and many others worldwide. While the first U.S. case was reported back in January, by March 1st, there were still only two reported U.S. deaths and 89 confirmed cases nationwide. Insidiously, within another 90 days, 100,000 U.S. citizens succumbed despite ambitious efforts to impose physical distancing and stay-at-home policies across the country and abroad. More concerning, many of those dying were young, previously healthy persons, including frontline first responders, doctors, nurses, and many other healthcare colleagues. Early on, COVID-19 was largely described as a severe respiratory illness characterized by cough, fever, and flu-like symptoms. Those seeking hospital care generally were described as having severe dry cough, dyspnea, fever, and pleuritic chest pain or tightness. Many were also found to have arterial oxygen desaturation, even in the absence of dyspnea. Some patients remained minimally symptomatic, but others showed they could rapidly decompensate into a severe respiratory failure requiring ventilator support with a radiographic picture, often resembling adult respiratory distress syndrome, or ARDS. Considering these overt pulmonary disease presentations, a focus on the pulmonary disease process has become central in discussions regarding the management of the virus not only among clinicians and public health officials, but also the media and public at large. As often seen in ARDS, the severe lung disease cases are also frequently associated with renal demise, liver enzyme elevations, myocardial dysfunction, and other general signs of so-called cytokine storm. Thus, this multi-organ failure has been widely accepted as a secondary complication of the more overt pulmonary symptoms and hypoxemia until recently. More than the lung. Severe COVID-19 illness may not just be primarily a pulmonary problem, but rather a broad systemic infection that involves a spectrum of widespread inflammatory processes and highly unusual vascular disorders that not only contribute to respiratory dysfunction, but also create many other pathological findings. Specifically, in many affected patients, the virus seems to cause widespread clotting of capillaries and smaller blood vessels accompanied by concomitant inflammatory processes that suffocate previously healthy tissues. In some patients, clotting in larger vessels may result in deep vein thrombosis, pulmonary embolism, stroke, and even myocardial injury. While many hypotheses already exist, a well-accepted consensus on the cause of clotting disorders remains elusive to date. 
As has been emphasized more recently with respect to children, a widespread systemic inflammatory response can occur with COVID-19, typically occurring a little later in the clinical course of symptomology. This complication is often characterized as a cytokine storm, usually marked by high levels of inflammatory proteins in the bloodstream. This pathological development is now well associated with processes like myocarditis, encephalitis, and diffuse vasculitis. It is speculated, therefore, that vasculitis could potentially trigger widespread clotting. However, for many other reasons, including the observation of clotting problems in the absence of distinct systemic inflammatory complications, the precise cause still remains unclear. In fact, it is also speculated that clotting and associated microinfarcts in various body tissues could be, in turn, a key contributor to the inflammatory processes. Overall, the current common clinical opinions of frontline practitioners are that the clotting and inflammatory complications are likely interwined processes, but may also be independently acting complications in some cases, and both need to be addressed accordingly. In that respect, the purpose of this discussion is to specifically examine an approach to hypercoagulable states associated with COVID-19. The consequences of this diffuse clotting disorder can be grave and yet not readily recognized. In turn, this more sublime pathological aspect of COVID-19 has ramifications for providers who may first encounter possible COVID-19 patients in the out-of-hospital setting. Be they first responders, paramedics, medical directors, nursing practitioners, primary care physicians, or public health officials, awareness of this clotting process is essential. Early recognition and appropriately directed treatment are believed to be key to preventing further disease progression. Much of the current knowledge regarding this so-called vascular plugging complication of COVID-19 emanates from autopsy reports in which post-mortem examinations revealed widespread microthrombi associated with platelet clumping throughout the body as well as clots in larger vessels too. With respect to the more overt pulmonary disease processes, microthrombi may create pulmonary microinfarcts, leading to tissue demise and death. Accumulation of dying tissue debris in the lung appears to be further exacerbated by inflammatory white cell infiltrating the lung air spaces, much like pus, along with associated edematous changes further complicating lung function. While these pathological processes lead to respiratory compromise, similar processes can also occur in vessels that supply the central nervous system or other key organs. The circulatory compromise in neurological tissue is thought to cause a multitude of manifestations ranging from isolated, altered smell and taste disturbances to a significant number of brain tissue infarcts or strokes, some minor, some major. These neurological complications can be associated with accompanying inflammatory responses resembling encephalitis in many cases. Similar effects of clotting complication attack the heart, gastrointestinal tract, kidneys, liver, and even skin, particularly in the fingertips and toes. There are also reports of thrombi formation in dialysis circuits and ECMO pumps, which can be life-threatening if not addressed expediently. Recently, reports have even shown venous and arterial clotting resulting in limb loss. A major concern is that this clotting disorder may also lead to unanticipated lethal pulmonary embolus or cardiac arrest with no heralding signs or symptoms. Spotting, 
and blotting the clotting. Physical distancing and shelter-at-home strategies have slowed the spread of the infection, but once a person acquires it, is there a way to slow the disease process, its complications, and even associated deaths? If multi-organ damage is primarily due to persistent clotting, then perhaps antiplatelet therapy or anticoagulant interventions may be helpful in slowing or even reversing the process. In an attempt to begin to understand the pathophysiology, prevalence, and management of COVID-19, a coalition of EMS, emergency medicine, and critical care clinical researchers was formed in early March in South Florida. This de facto collaborative featured representation from a number of EMS agencies, emergency departments, and critical care units across three counties, Broward, Miami-Dade, and Palm Beach. The group adopted the moniker So Flow Co, Southern Florida Collaborative. Even as the first autopsy data were beginning to appear, many of the Slow Flow Co team members had already started to evaluate the clotting parameters of patients, including those with and without specific signs or symptoms of clotting diatheses. Communicated through messaging, apps, and twice-weekly video conferences, the exchange of information and debates across the coalition became constant cognitive neighborhood sandbox, a virtual think tank initiative that addressed evolving observations regarding COVID-19 and its assessment and management. The importance of the clotting disorder, its prevalence, and considerations for empiric treatment became early topics of discussion. At first, it was recommended that patients would receive a clotting workup after arriving at the hospital, but typical clotting parameters such as D-dimer measurements, prothrombin time, and INRs did not appear to be specific enough and often were simply considered to be compatible with a massive inflammatory response similar to elevated C-reactive protein counts and ferritin levels. Thanks to recent advances in trauma care, however, the group was able to rapidly consider and turn to early use of thromboelastography as a better test of whole blood clotting in an individual patient. Over the past few months, TAG evaluations have shown many COVID-19 patients are indeed hypercoagulable hyperclotters. This finding was therefore consistent with evolving pathological data reporting widespread microthrombi formation. But at the same time, and very notably, TEG has also shown a certain percentage of patients also can be hypocoagulable and thus more prone to bleeding. In other cases, the patients may be hypercoagulable, but also found to have low platelet levels. Accordingly, empiric anticoagulation or antiplatelet therapies, which are currently performed at many institutions to prevent these clotting complications of COVID-19, could therefore be harmful if a patient is found to be in a hypocoagulable state. Using TEG with platelet mapping, however, frontline clinicians may be able to create a more individualized approach to ascertain the right therapy for right patient. If indicated, therapies to prevent clotting can be instituted, and if not, avoided. But TEG with platelet mapping also provided an even better guide to help us achieve best practice therapies be it specifically targeted use of antiplatelet interventions, example aspirin, or use of anti-clotting factor medications, example heparins. In that respect, TEG may arise as the single most helpful tool in slowing the formation of thrombi while preventing bleeding in this vulnerable population. Unfortunately, to date, TEG generally is only available in hospital 
and largely in trauma center settings. Nevertheless, with the current experience and evolving trauma care practices, it may become a consideration for future pre-hospital advances. The important role of EMS. While TAG with platelet mapping was becoming a breakthrough clinical consideration, our experience with it also demonstrated that many COVID-19 patients with TAG abnormalities, be they hyper or hypocoagulable, had no signs or symptoms of a clotting or bleeding disorder at the time of evaluation or any profound inflammatory complications. Many patients with milder to moderate symptoms and those who simply had positive tests for COVID-19 are now routinely being managed outside the hospital based on their pulmonary symptoms and signs. Therefore, the clotting problem may go unrecognized altogether or perhaps underappreciated. With those concerns, the goal of this current communication was not only to provide a better awareness of these common and unrecognized complications of COVID-19, but also to convey to the out-of-hospital care personnel 10 golden considerations in their evaluation of patients in this area of COVID-19. Concluding thoughts. Evolving experience with TEG, clotting parameters, treatment considerations, and ongoing data gathering will help us better understand if antiplatelet therapy or anticoagulant treatment with traditional or low molecular weight, heparin, can change outcomes positively in cases where hypercoagulable states can be identified. TEG may be a pivotal test in helping us distinguish the need for such interventions. But for now, as TEG remains an in-hospital tool, it will take careful pre-hospital assessment to help identify those who may need such a targeted evaluation. Although most people infected with this novel virus will either be asymptomatic or have a less severe clinical course, those who do become ill and hospitalized can experience serious and life-threatening complications. As emphasized by this discussion, many of these complications may be the result of a COVID-driven hypercoagulable state associated with a significant inflammatory response. These complications have significant consequences. While it is not always clear who has developed clotting diatheses, awareness is key. What does remain clear is that COVID-19 is not simply a flu-like illness or a stronger version of the common cold. And serious infection with SARS-CoV-2 is much more than an isolated pulmonary process. Also, keep in mind that any current understandings regarding the pathophysiology of COVID-19 may change as our experience with the virus expands. In addition, presumptive future mutations of SARS-CoV-2 may also change the perspectives provided in the current discussion. With that understanding, the authors and their team members will do their best to keep frontline heroes informed with the most available and reliable information possible. Please stay tuned for the accompanying interview that I hold with Dr. Tiasha Haranyets, co-author of this article. Hello, and welcome to another episode of EMS World Podcasts. I'm your host, Mike McCabe. In today's episode, we will discuss the article entitled Spotting the Clotting, Hypercoagulopathy in COVID-19. This piece is featured in the August issue of EMS World and was authored by Drs. Michael S. Stryker, Tiasha Haranyat, and Paul Pepe. With me today to discuss this truly fascinating piece is Dr. Tiasha Haranyats, a board-certified trauma critical care transplant surgeon and vice chair of surgery at Memorial Regional Hospital in Hollywood, Florida. Doctor, thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here and talk about coagulation and coagulopathy. So we're going to talk to you, we're going to refer to you as Dr. T because it's a lot easier for me to pronounce and you said that that was okay. So that's how we will start the podcast. 
Dr. T, explain to me how this article came about with your unique background, because obviously it, it seems like it was a collaboration with emergency physicians and then also yourself, who has a background in what? I have a background in trauma, critical care, and also abdominal transplantation. And I have been interested in coagulation and coagulopathy for a very long time. Uh, obviously, trauma patients after their severe injuries co uh, come to us very coagulopathic. And it's been fascinating looking into uh, and, you know, diagnosis and treatment of their disorder after they come in. Uh, and uh, we are able to guide their transfusion and their treatment. So it's been quite interesting from that perspective. And then on the transplant side, most liver patients, uh, most kidney patients, especially before they receive their organ, they're extremely coagulopathic and their coagulopathy can range anywhere from bleeding to clotting. So once again, very fascinating, very important to diagnose and very important to apply an appropriate treatment for them. So I've been interested for many, many years, and I'm really excited to talk to you about this. So really interesting, right? Because sure, that's your specialty, trauma, clotting, bleeding, coagulation, coagulopathies. But isn't this just a lung disease? So in terms of COVID, you mean, uh, whether this is a lung disease in terms of COVID? Uh, no, absolutely not. We don't know much about this disease, but we have had a chance to learn some things in the past eight months to a year, uh, thanks to all these really hardworking physicians, researchers, nurses, respiratory therapists, pharmacists, and everyone else in the medical field. And what we know is that COVID is most likely a disease of the vessels. And vessels supply nutrients and oxygen to all cells in the body. And therefore, COVID can affect vessel in any organ. So you can have skin effects, you can have kidney effects, lung, obviously, liver, heart, etc. And everyone presents very differently. So I, I threw that question at you, and, and obviously I, I did it almost in jest as just being a lung disease, because I think early on, um, you know, specifically for me up here in the Northeast, in the, in the New Jersey and New York area, we were just overwhelmed and we had so few answers as to how to attack this pandemic. It was presenting in, in such strange ways that we didn't really understand it. And that's why I was saying that this article was so fascinating because I think it brought a lot of answers to some of the questions we had with the presentations that we were seeing. And certainly the clotting factor is one that we're looking at now and understanding so much more as to how to attack this and how to treat it. And we were speaking earlier on, and you said to me that there's such a misconception in clotting being constant in the body. And I was wondering if you could just expand upon that a little bit for the listener. Absolutely. So when, you know, as scientists, uh, and I mean all of us, physicians, PhDs, everybody, as we study coagulation process, we study it in really nitty-gritty details where we discuss all the tiny little factors that are involved in a coagulation cascade that initiates clot formation. 
we talk about platelets and platelet function and how they can dysfunction. We focus a little bit on what happens when a factor is missing, uh, and that could cause hemorrhagic or thrombotic effects. But what we always kind of think about when it comes to coagulation is we think of it as being static. So when you and I are just sitting like this and talking about coagulation, we think that it's exactly the same process as after we've been injured, for example, or after we've been infected. But that we know is not true. And this is not a novel idea at all, but it seems to be a difficult concept to understand. So for example, say that you've been in a trauma and you have a broken bone. Your body's coagulation process needs to become hypercoagulable so that you don't bleed to death from that tiny bone fracture that you've sustained, right? And then you come to the hospital and we can fix you up. Um, after you've had surgery, for example, in order for us to be able to do surgery on you, you also, you know, we're cutting the tissue, but you need to not bleed to death while we're doing this. So your entire process has to change. Your coagulation process has to change and you have to become more hypercoagulable to allow us to do that. And then for the next few days, you'll be hypercoagulable while you heal. And then your coagulation process is going to normalize. But we don't think of it that way. We, always, we think of it as having a constant coagulation process. So how we are today is the same way as when we've become infected, when we've, become, um, uh, when we've been in a trauma, when we've suffered a surgery or some kind of, you know, some other disease process. And this is a concept that has been very difficult to understand, this sort of a fluidity of our coagulation process. So for example, in patients with COVID, they can come in and yes, they can be thrombotic and they can form clots in their legs and lungs or kidneys, liver, brain, for example, but they can be much more, have a coagulation process that's much more complex than that. They can actually be bleeding at the same time. They can have a GI bleed, they can have a bleed in their head, they can have hemoptysis and bleeding from their lungs. So it's a lot more difficult than just Yes, this, these patients are hypercoagulable and they're going to form clots. So this sort of idea of coagulation process being fluid has been somewhat difficult to understand. Um, you know, it's a little bit unusual, though, that we are so resistant to understanding this because lots of things in medicine are very fluid. I mean, if you think about it, all I have to do is run up and down the hall and my heart rate is going to increase, right? It's not going to stay the same. Um, for example, if I come in with an infection, my white blood cell count is going to increase. And then if I'm being treated with appropriate antibiotics, white blood cell is going to come down. So the process of, you know, fluidity um, uh, in, in any medical disease is very common in medicine. But yet, when we come to discuss coagulation process, we think it's always the same. And what happens is, if you think that coagulation process is the same, then you don't think that it needs to be diagnosed. And therefore, a treatment that is to be applied is going to be uniform to all of us. But we know that that can't be true. For example, take another example in, in medical world. 
um, high blood pressure, right? Many people have high blood pressure. Other people have normal blood pressure and others still low blood pressure. You wouldn't possibly want to give antihypertensives to a patient who has low blood pressure to begin with, right? You could kill them. So uh, the importance of diagnosing high blood pressure is, um, is huge because you want to apply correct treatment. The same goes with coagulation and the coagulation process and therefore coagulopathy. You want to be able to diagnose the coagulation process and coagulopathy correctly so that you can apply appropriate treatment and then prevent side effects, whether they are immediate or long-term. I hope that makes sense. It does. And so really what you're trying to do and what you are doing is thinking outside of the box because so often in medicine, you, you have to do that. You have to think of alternate um, remedies that may work for this. And so in this case, when you're thinking about the coagulation process, what are some of the markers that you're now using that you may not have used or thought to use in the past? Uh, some of the profile testing that was spoken about in the article, uh, the, you know, the tag and the platelet mapping, what is that all about? What does that mean to the pre-hospital provider? What does that mean uh, as far as thinking outside of the box? Typically, when we talk about coagulation and coagulation processes, we've been looking at PT, PTT, INR, right? So the partial thromboplastin time, uh, the INR, which is usually related more to somebody taking Coumadin or somebody having liver disease. So usually when we think about measuring coagulation processes, we look to PT, PTT, INR. Unfortunately, they are less than perfect. And honestly, when they were designed back decades ago, they really were not meant to be used in the way that we want to use them. And we haven't necessarily had great tests. Uh, but we do have the tests now. Uh, it's called thromboelastography, and there are different types of tags. Uh, the tag that we most commonly use is tag with platelet mapping. And this is a test that has been around, if you can believe it, for more than 50 years. Uh, but it's only recently become uh, more common and uh, commonly used. Uh, we certainly use it a lot in trauma transplant, cardiac surgery, where we guide patients' resuscitation, um, patients' blood transfusions using TEG. But we don't, we're not very good at using TEG for the opposite side of the spectrum, and that's the hypercoagulopathy, uh, hypercoagulation, uh, clot formation, and prevention of clot formation. So that's what we've been trying to do. What TEG does is it is a whole blood test. So it literally looks at how your blood clots when all the factors, all the platelets, all the hormones, anything that's in your blood is put together. It, it, form, it basically forms a clot in front of you and it generates a beautiful curve that can then tell you where the problem lies. And it won't specifically tell you, oh, it's factor seven on your coagulation cascade that you learned about in college or medical school, but it'll tell you that there is a problem with factors or there is a problem with platelets. And then you can figure out how to guide your management. For example, in COVID, especially in COVID patients who tend to be hypercoagulable, we are seeing that platelets are extremely hyperactive. So when we see that, 
your next step would be to see if you can try and decrease that hyperactivity. So we try to apply antiplatelet medications, which are aspirin, Plavix, and there's many others, but that's where we start. And so TEG allows you that diagnosis that otherwise you would be shooting, uh, shooting just sort of blanks um, and trying to figure out a treatment and you don't even know what the patient needs. So it's really kind of what we're trying to do is develop individualized treatment um, so that we figure out what your diagnosis is, where your defect in coagulation uh, is, and then we proceed to the appropriate treatment that you need, but perhaps I don't. So again, it's it's all very, very interesting to me. And, and I had made mention of it earlier um, in the podcast about I, I, it's probably that fascinating to me because I was involved intimately early on in the process. And there were so many things that were happening, but one of the things that really stood out you know, for myself and, and for many of the providers was the increase in sudden cardiac arrests. It went up about 300% in that time frame, And we were screening calls in the 911 dispatch centers and, and folks were arresting on the phone. And we had no idea why this was happening. And that's why when I read the article, Spotting the Clotting, it, the whole clotting concept, you know, started to make sense. Were these people throwing uh, PEs? You know, were they having MIs? Were they having massive strokes? Did they wait too long? You know, is, is this what this article is trying to put forth and trying to convey? Obviously, there are so many unanswered questions, but these clots, are they spontaneously killing folks if it goes without being recognized early on in the process? I think you are 100% right in saying that it's different things killing different people. You know, cardiac arrest is a terminal event. Everyone dies ultimately from their heart stopping. But what leads to that is different for everybody. Uh, for sure, there is a large number of people who have had clots and PEs. Other people have strokes, like you mentioned. Other people wait too long, and perhaps it's those microthrombi that are slowly forming in their lungs that then cause overwhelming um, inflammatory response in the lung that lead them to have low oxygen level. And, you know, the consequences of that could be anything. Again, MI, um, you know, you name it. I think everyone is dying from different reasons. But I think the reason for that is that. You know, again, going back to the earlier question is that COVID seems to affect vessels and vessels are the key to every organ surviving in our body. And so when there's microthrombi that are forming, um, when nerves, for example, are affected, then any organ can fail. So even though there was perhaps an increase in cardiac arrest, that is really just the terminal event. But as to what caused that, Nobody knows. Doc, moving on to the inflammatory process. With pediatric cases, is this why we're seeing this type of inflammation? Maybe not presenting with the significant symptoms that we're seeing in adult patients, but is this why we're seeing these inflammatory processes that we haven't really customarily seen with viruses like this in children? 
Yeah, you know, I don't really work with children, um, but I certainly have read a lot of reports on this inflammatory processes. Um, absolutely. You know, again, having, for example, a clot, a, a micro clot in your lung will cause local inflammation. It just means that your little soldiers, your little white blood cells, you know, are trying to investigate what has happened and are trying to fix it. That's really what's happening even, you know, even in adults, even in lungs. And then that process can become quite overwhelming. So absolutely, this inflammatory process um, is happening in children, but I also think it's happening in the adults. Um, there it was a recent report that came out saying that p- patients after they've gotten over COVID, still are showing uh, inflammation of their heart and heart vessels, Um, um, you know, even though their COVID is now negative. So it's almost like there's been some long-term consequences. As to what exactly is causing inflammation, I can't wait to, uh, you know, see what these brilliant scientists come up with who are way smarter than I am. Um, I don't know that we've figured out the pathophysiology pathophysiology of it all, but absolutely, I think it's all related. Uh, Whenever you have vascular problems, that will cause inflammation. And inflammation is nothing more than your white blood cells coming to that area of the tissue that's been injured uh, and trying to figure out how to fix that. I think it's it's really something to, you know, with respect to the article, I think the best way to describe it is it's not just a unifocal disease, COVID-19. It's much greater. I think thinking outside the box is absolutely paramount and more early screening is going to absolutely bring about better results. And And that's what is said in here. And you also talk about some considerations for EMS, um, you know, gold, 10 golden considerations for COVID-19. And many of these are the things that we were speaking about during this podcast, you know, thinking outside the box, looking at the inflammatory process. This, it just should not be that this is a lung disease. By doing that, we're doing, you know, a considerable disservice to the patients and to ourselves as providers, because we're not thinking it through. Am I correct in saying that? A hundred percent. This, because this is a problem with vessels and they're everywhere, the org, any organ system can be affected. I think we are most frequently seeing patients who do have a lung problem. However, that lung problem initially starts, but absolutely we shouldn't think of it as a lung disease because that's, it's not that. And therefore, the answer to diagnosis and treatment will be just different to, with every patient. Um, when patients are symptomatic, they should go uh, seek out their physicians uh, who can, depending on what their medical history, their surgical history is, they can design an individual uh, treatment plan for that particular patient. There's going to be no one-size-fits-all approach as it rarely is in medicine. Doc, I cannot thank you enough for coming on and and speaking about this article. As I said, I really uh, thought it was a fascinating piece. I really look forward to a lot more of the research and data that's going to be released coming down the road. I know that you're working on it. And again, I just want to thank you and I want you to stay safe down in Florida. Thank you very much for having me. And I wish you all the same. 
please stay safe. Um, we are nowhere near over uh, with this, this fighting this disease. And, uh, you know, we really need to continue to spread the word of wearing masks and, uh, you know, doing the six feet between individuals um, and just everybody really watching out because this is nowhere near over and it can affect all of us. So very true, Doc. Thank you again, and thank you, everybody, for listening. I'm Mike McCabe. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on another edition of EMS World Podcasts. This has been an episode of EMS World Podcast. You can find this audio and more like it on the podcast page of emsworld.com. You can also follow EMS World on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. 